May the 27th. Here we are, May the 27th, uh, 2012, and I'm noting the time now so that I don't get in trouble. Lecture discussion number 69 and a half on the book of Romans, and that's kind of a joke, kind of not, and actually being that today is part of the Memorial Day holiday weekend, um, uh, and Alaska being home to fisher people and camper people. As, as being a highly trained professional, I knew in advance that many people would be missing today, and I really didn't want to go to lecture number 70 uh, and have to repeat so much of it with 75% of Anchorage uh, fleeing to Deep Creek, uh, where they find each other, and they have one great big huge Walmart parking lot down there on the beach. And why did they go, by the way? It fascinates me because I used to do it. And I have a story about the coldest day of my life it was on Memorial Day at Deep Creek. But they go for uh, clams and king salmon and hypothermia, frostbite. It's the most miserable experience I ever had. The only thing worse was fishing with John. Where John took me halibut fishing with two guys eating peanut butter sandwich. We didn't even get away from the dock and some kid gave us Captain Crunchberry about four inches deep all the way across the hole. So that that ruined my fishing experience. <laughs> Eight hours of retching with John. I've never forgotten that either. Anyway, I knew there would only be a few of us remaining and actually I'm stunned. It didn't, I feel bad for you that uh, you didn't get out of here, but uh, I knew that there would be some of us who stayed behind, and that's us who fish at Costco and camp at Golden Correct. And that's an easy decision for me. Uh, it really is. As you know, as you know, I got, I got ice cream and that mountain of chocolate thingy and um, pizza, or I got paralytic seafood poisoning. It, it, really, it really isn't a big deal for me to go down there anymore. I've outgrown it, but... Um, that's just as an aside. Anyway, because of the nature of these kinds of weekends, I decided to modify the process this Sunday so as not to be in the position to repeat everything next Sunday, which is the beginning of Romans 5, which is the, uh, which will be, uh, lecture number 70. This is kind of an informal day, and I have to kind of clear the deck or the slate from last week, because a few things remain. I tried to, um, tried to give you the high points, if you will, or the key points of the motive of Satan. And, and then once I'm done with that today, after I clear that off, um, I'll make sure I finish Satan's motive as well as I can. Then I'm going to open up the floor to questions. And I have some already emailed to me, five or so handed in, and people called me to tell me, as I announced, I would take questions as best I can. The only thing I ask is that your question not require a lifetime to answer, or at least you'd be satisfied with my brief answer. Uh, otherwise, the hamburgers, the hot dogs, and the Kentucky Fried Chicken will suffer. Okay, quickly from last week, let's do this. Get yourself in this habit. Whenever you're talking about Satan, you got to go two places and read them side by side. One of those is, of course, Isaiah 14, and the other one is Ezekiel 28. So get in the habit of writing next to your Isaiah 14, write Ezekiel 28 next to it so you'll always read them together as best you can. So here we are, 14.12 of Isaiah. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, and he, these are the five I wills of Satan. So whenever you're discussing Satan, you have to look at these five things that he said. He has fivefold lies, he has a fivefold I wills. And you put those together, by the way, and I'll have to do that sometime in the future. I will ascend into heaven. What's the first thing you ask when you see that? Why does he want to do it? What's his motive? I will ascend into heaven. Where's heaven? Who's there? How high is he going? Lots of questions, but right off the bat, the motive. He says that he will ascend into heaven. What makes him want to do that? Do you want to ascend into heaven? What's it require to ascend into heaven? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now, you make the uh, easily make the case there that the stars of God is uh, Michael, the archangel, and the uh, angels. They are often called the stars of God as well as the sons of God. So I think it's very um, evident that that's what he's doing. He wants to increase his authority. If he increases his authority, what's the result of that? He wants to be over uh, the uh, Michael, the archangel, and the stars of God. What's that going to require? I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. So he's going to sit at the height that he can. He's going to be on the mountain. Who else is going to sit there next to him? Yeah, he's either asking for equality or superiority, isn't he, to God himself. On the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Do you want to be like God? If you do, you have no idea what the job description requires. You don't want to be like God. If you think you do want to be like God, you automatically made yourself not like God the instant you wanted to be like Him. If that makes sense to you. Okay, those are the five I wills. And again, you have to read those with Ezekiel 28. Compare them both side by side. Ezekiel 28.16 talks about him being filled with violence. These five I wills result in him being filled in violence because he takes these the plan that he has to, to fulfill these five I wills and uh, he takes them to angel to angel one at a time. It's called the abundance of his traffic. And that process turns him into this violent being. Okay? So I needed to read that because uh, during the post game last week uh, up here, Boris and Bill and Mike had an extensive discussion on the motives of Satan and the consequences uh, on the angelic host, the totality of the impact. By the way, it's always a good idea to have your timeline firmly in your head. Here is the fall of Adam. Where was the fall of, of uh, Satan? Obviously before the fall of Adam. How much before? How long did it take? Okay? I have the fall of the one-third of the angelic host. When did that happen? How far away from the fall of, of Satan did it go? How far before the creation of Adam was it? All of that stuff has to be worked out in your little timeline uh, so that you can understand Satan's uh, motive, if you will. So anyway, we have to go through Isaiah 14. I'm not reading Ezekiel 28. I want to go fast today in order to get the totality of the impact of how the angelic host was affected and how that continues to affect humanity, because it does. And I thought everybody should know at least uh, some of the details of what Bill and Boris and Mike talked about last week uh, because I thought it was very valuable. And so I'm going to give you the, 
the major points that they had. And hopefully everybody remembers last week. And if you don't, it's okay. Um, I'll try to help you as best I can. We were in Matthew 19 last week. That was our discussion. That was the great divorce trap question. The Pharisees came to Christ with a divorce trap question. In other words, they had produced a paradox for him that they did not believe he could answer. It's called the divorce trap of Matthew 19. That has a direct correlation to the motive of Satan. That's how we get there, and I'll explain that right now, or try to. And anyway, Bill and Boris and Mike, that's where they were last week, and they brought up a bunch of interesting things. Again, the Pharisees come to Christ in an attempt to engage him in a question that they know is a paradox. And I didn't really explain that very well. I I did it barely because I didn't have time. I wanted to make it into James 2. That's very important for you to know, isn't it? Matthew 19 and James 2, just like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Those guys, Matthew 19, James 2, are very similar. They have very similar uh, structure. And it's very important to know that this divorce trap paradox question not only takes you to the motive of Satan, but it also explains James 2 for you. When you've got that, James 2 stops being a problem for you. Everybody reads James 2 and they get to the part where it says, you have faith, I have works, faith without works is dead. And they get all confused and they go, okay, I've got to somehow work for my salvation. But the mistake they make is that they don't know it's a divorce trap question, and the divorce trap question explains James 2, which explains Matthew 19, and it gets me into the motives of Satan. If that's all you got, the next time you read James 2, you go, I'm confused here. Just tell yourself, go to Matthew 19. When you go to Matthew 19 and you say, I'm still confused, that's okay. You'll work your way through it eventually. I'll try to help you today. Just know that James 2, Matthew 19 have a very similar structure. Okay. The Pharisees ask this in Matthew 19. Go ahead and turn there, and uh, if you weren't, especially if you weren't here last week, and try to follow along. And I'll put it on the board as best I can. All of this is because of Mike, Boris, and Bill the Cow. In case you thought it was Bill Fast. The Pharisees ask. They have come after their committee meeting where they uh, they had a plan. They said, okay, what is the best question we can ask him? He is knocking all of them down. He knocked down uh, who's married in heaven question. He wiped that out because he immediately saw that when they came to him and said, the brother of the, of the you know, the lady marries a guy, that guy dies, and she marries the brother, and that guy dies, he marries another brother, that guy dies, and they went through that. And then, who is she married to in heaven? And Christ immediately knew what that was. That was not a question about marriage, was it? What was it a question about? Where in the Bible does it say? Where in the Pentateuch, actually, does it say? The Pharisees, with that marriage question about whose husband is she, or whose wife is she, in heaven, that question was not about husband and wives or marriage at all. It was about where in the first five books of the Pentateuch, the Mosaic five books, where does it say there is resurrection of the dead? And Christ answered it. I am the father of Abraham Isaac. And Jake, I am, not I was, I am, which means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had to be what? Still alive, immortal. 
and resurrected. So if you think these questions by the Pharisees are about you and your divorce, you're at a very shallow level. They're applicable to you, but that's not what they're about. They're never about that. Just like the wife and the seven brothers or how many brothers and whose husband is it or whose wife is it is about resurrection. Same thing's true here in 19. Okay, so start with that. At least you'll get that far. And then now you know what James 2 is about, don't you? Because whatever Matthew 19 is about, that's what James 2 is about. The Pharisees came to him, trying to trap him. It says testing him and saying to him. Remember, they all got together. Okay, we got wiped out on the resurrection question. Now let's find out. Actually, that was the Sadducees. But let's say, but now let's try this one. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? If you think that question is about divorce, you're wrong. It's a paradox question. So what is the paradox? Is it lawful? Divorce. Any. Reason. I'll ask it better. I'll ask it as they ask. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason that he wants? What are they really asking? And Christ responds, that's the question, here's his response. At the beginning... God made them male and female. Now, those two questions, or I'm sorry, that question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? At the beginning, God made them male and female. That's the perfect response to that question. Because both groups knew what each one was going to talk about. The Pharisees immediately knew that was the right answer. That they had never thought of before. They had been in their debate societies for hundreds of years. Asking this question, is it lawful to to divorce for any reason? No one could answer it and Christ answers it right there. At the beginning... Have you not read that he who made them male at the beginning made them male and female? And the Pharisees then counter. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? So their answer is, why Moses put her away, certificate of divorce. Now you know what it's about, don't you? How did Christ respond to that? That that gave it away. That certificate of divorce gave it away right there. Okay? Christ responds almost as interestingly. He says, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart. Moses? What's hardness of heart? I'm going to help you here. What is it? When I say... 
Katrina has hardness of heart over her son and jewelry, which is now all over the world, Katrina. (laughs) Why does she have hardness of heart? What is hardness of heart? Define hardness of heart for me. Moses, hardness of heart. Permitted divorce. What is hardness of heart? Somebody give me a definition. You can do this. It's rebellion is exactly what it is, so therefore now what do we have to ask? I feel like a two-year-old. What's rebellion? No matter which question you answer, I give you another question. Huh? Free will. That's exactly what it is. Very good. Hardness of heart is a free will decision to do what? To become hard. Because you have made a free will decision to do what? Become sinful. Divorce is permitted. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Who's the her? Who's the her? If you think it's you, it isn't about you, sorry. The Bible very rarely is about you. This is going to be a really tough lesson. Even though the Bible applies to you, all, all scripture is applicable, the Bible very rarely is about me, or you, or us. It is about who? It is about God. It is relevatory of his character and his plans. And you can learn from it, and you can apply it to you, but... Everybody that finds themselves first in the Bible has made a fundamental error. What do you find first? You find Christ first. You find you where? Way down the list, baby. It's a constant mistake of selfishness and self-aggrandizement and ego and narcissism. That's what's wrong. When you're always finding yourself in the Bible and you think it's about you... And it's not about God, and it's not about Christ. There's something wrong with you. I'm very sorry if that ruins your day. N- not really. I'm not. I'm not really sorry at all. And that is, of course, a classic face fake sorry. Okay. So again, let's repeat. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Who's his wife? Where's the divorce? And Christ, what divorce are they talking about? What wife are they talking about? What man are they talking about? Is it generic or is it specific? I'm going to propose to you it's obviously specific. And Christ responds at the beginning, made the male and female marriage. He responds with marriage. At the beginning, made them male and female marriage. The Pharisees then counter Moses' certificate of divorce, put her away. And Christ responds again, hardness of hearts, which is free will. From the beginning, it was not so. Adultery. Okay? You got got the order so far? Then what comes next? I won't put it on the board because I don't want to burn up all the time. What comes next? If you read the text, what comes next? Three types of eunuchs. Little children, camels, and needles. So there's your order. Divorce his wife for any reason. At the beginning made the male and female marriage. Moses' certificate of divorce put her away. Hardness of hearts from the beginning. It was not so. Adultery. Three types of eunuchs, little children, camels and needles. 
That's the order of Matthew 19, and hopefully you're able to see that's that order and what that order is about. What is that order about in every single... What is male and female in marriage about? What is hardness of heart from the beginning it was not so adultery about? What is three types of eunuchs, little children, camels, and needles about? What is that all about? What's the, what is the point? The point is salvation. Salvation runs through every one of those. And if you don't know and don't know how it does it, I explained it last week and see me in the today's post game, and I'll explain it to you again. But for today, Boris, Bill, and Mike, during their conversation on Matthew 19, they very quickly got to Satan and the angelic host and Satan's motive and angelic free will uh, from where what I just covered for you in Matthew 19, and they did it correctly as well. They should have gotten to those things. You see, whenever the Pharisees bring up divorce or marriage, the discussion, and everybody knows what the discussion is really about between Christ and the Pharisees, it'll immediately go to Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10. What is that? That is where, in the Bible, the bill of divorcement is issued by God to Israel. God divorced Israel. That is the fourth stage of the six-stage divorce procedure. And so whenever I see divorce in the New Testament from a Pharisee, immediately I have to say to myself, they are probably talking about, and that is the case here, God and Israel. So is it lawful for God to divorce Israel for any reason? Why did God put Israel away and issue a certificate of divorce? Why did he do it? Why did God put Israel away? Let me give you those six stages. There's first, there's a marriage contract between God and Israel. Then there is what's called the great adultery. Then the separation. And then the divorce, certificate of divorce. Then the punishment. And then what comes next? Remarriage. Restoration. If you need the uh, verses for that, I have them here. And again, see me afterwards. And I've done this many, many times. And so hopefully uh, most of you know all about that. Now, please don't confuse Israel with the church here. Many people do that. It's called replacement theology. What you have to understand, and I say it every time I do this kind of stuff, God is utilizing marriage and divorce to teach about Israel. That's one thing that he's doing. Because he has put Israel into a marriage symbol and a divorce symbol, how he's treating them. Is he really married to Israel? Literally. No, it's symbolic. He is using marriage as a symbol to teach about Israel, teach us and to teach them. And he utilizes the betrothal ceremony to teach about the church, the the wife of YHVH and the bride of Christ. They're symbols and methods of prophecy and teaching about two distinct groups. One group is the nation of Israel. The other group is the church. And I realize that it's very easy to get confused, but at least maintain the distinction between the church and Israel, and you'll go through the Bible a lot faster and a lot cleaner with more understanding. Okay, so far then, this divorce question from the Pharisees is about God divorcing Israel at the deeper level, and there's always a deeper level in Scripture. If you're only seeing the shallow level, get to work. If all you got is a spoon, go get a shovel. If all you got is a shovel, get a backhoe. If you think it's the Bible is easy and that you got it all worked out, then you haven't even begun to start. 
Everybody who tells me, and I used to get this all the time, and I won't reveal the person that said it last to me, but I have had people say to me, I have read the Bible five or six times, I know everything about it. Those are always the people that know the absolute least about it. Always. Because the people that know the most never say that. They never tell you how many times they've read it, how come? Because they know not to brag about that. And they never tell you they understand it, how come? Because they know it's the mind of God and they're, they're the speck and they're humble. Somebody comes to you bragging about how much he knows about scripture, knows nothing about scripture. Because he'd never do it if he did. Just like somebody comes to you bragging about how much he tithes. Same thing. You profane it when you brag about it. Okay, so far then, this divorce question from the Pharisees is about God divorcing Israel at the deeper level. And the Pharisees are asking essentially this. Why did God divorce Israel for any reason? What's implied in that? Is it, what's implied, is it lawful? What's that mean? Lawful. What's lawful mean? If I said, is it lawful or unlawful? Which one's good, which one's bad? Lawful, good. So I get rid of lawful. Is it good to divorce for any reason? Answer the question. That's what they asked you, the Pharisees. They came to you, put yourself in the story. You're not God, you're going to screw it up. But they came to you and they said... Is it good that God divorced Israel for any reason? What's implied here? It's not good. So what's that mean? God's not good. It's not just, it's not good, it's not lawful to divorce Israel for any reason. And Christ said, from the beginning, male and female... So, how is that an answer to this? And I told you last week, at the beginning, God made male and female. There's your answer. What is that? God made. Why did God make? Why does God make anything? Does he have to make something? Wasn't he happy with being God by himself? Why does he make? By the way, do you make anything? Don't tell me you make breakfast. You don't. Do you make anything? No, you don't have the power to create. This is creation. God created them, male and female. Why did he create them? Because he's a creator. What is creation? Let me ask you this. Is it good that you exist? Yes or no? Yeah. It is good. It is good that he creates. Creation is goodness. At the beginning, he created male and female. Now, what does that mean? Remember, the theme of Matthew 19 is what? Salvation. At the beginning, because salvation is hidden inside the marriage ceremony, isn't it? Salvation, marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of Christ and the church. Out of the side of Adam comes the female, Eve. At the beginning, in the very beginning, when is the beginning? He made them male and female. So what this is an answer about, Christ is saying, I can prove to you that God is good. Because they're saying that God is not good, right? They're declaring God to be what? 
Yes, exactly right. See, is it lawful is the same as is it right, is it good, which is the same as is God good, and implied in it is that God is evil. And Christ responds that salvation was laid before the foundation of the earth. Before time, energy, void one, space, and matter, Revelation 13, 8, there is salvation. What is salvation? What is salvation an evidence of? Before anything was created, there was salvation. What is it evidence of? Goodness. What is creation evidence of? Goodness. He is responding goodness to evil. That's what he's done. Did they get it? They had never heard from the beginning goodness. What does that mean? From the beginning goodness. See, now you have to logic it, and it stunned them. Stunned them. They had their little meetings. They thought this was unanswerable. And he goes, from the beginning goodness. They were stunned. And do you see the divorcing Israel gets you to where God is evil? That's where they're heading. And Christ says, from the beginning, salvation. Salvation is good. God is good before anything is created. And that means that God is what kind of good? He is pure good, or what we would also call omni-perfection. From the beginning, omni-perfection, or pure goodness, which means what? That means that it is impossible that God can be the source of sin or evil. Omniperfection cannot sin. That's called the impeccable view versus the peccable view. Omniperfection cannot sin. Pure good, from the beginning good, from the beginning good, it cannot become sin. It's impossible for pure good to be sin. Now, you may not have that logically figured out yet. Work that out on your own. But that's what Christ is saying to them, and they got it. It's the first time they had ever heard it. So now, what does that mean? That means that God cannot be the source of sin. So who is the source of sin? Hardness of heart is what? Free will what? See, they were beginning to say that God cannot divorce Israel. It's not fair. It's not just. It's not good because humanity does not have real free will. And Christ went back and said, God is good from the beginning. He's on the perfection. He cannot sin. There's no possibility pure good can sin. Therefore, sin, there's only one logical place it can come from, and that is free will of man. Okay? Why then did Moses issue the bill of divorcement? Mankind has free will. Israel committed adultery. Mankind has fallen. And that's how Boris, Bill, and Mike got to Satan and the angelic host. Does that make sense? Why does Satan want to ascend and have authority and have power? What is power? When I say I have power, what does that mean? If I say I have power over Abigail, my Labrador, what does that mean? It means I have control, which is not true. It's not even close to true. It's proven every day. The opposite is true. She proves that every day. I sit on the couch. I'm convinced I'm going to stay there. She has power over me. She's convinced that I'm going to let her out. And we're in this struggle that she always wins. 
She can bark at about 85 decibels. The TV goes to about 76. And so I lose every time. Satan wants control. Now, be very, very concerned about people who want control. I saw it my whole career in athletics. The last thing I want for a coach is a guy that wants to be coach. The last thing I want for an elder is a guy that wants to be elder. The last thing I want for music people are people that want to be music people. I want people, Eric, today, we made some joke about this, and and I was letting him know that... uh, uh, he could fire people in the music staff, and they all all volunteered. And that's what you want. You want people that want to quit and want to fire, and you have to drag them up there to do it. That's the right attitude. That's exactly the case for pastors and elders. Be very afraid of people that want control, politicians that want control, governments that want control, because this becomes this battle of good versus good and free, free will. Oops, oops. Those who deny that you have free will. I got a wonderful letter uh, from a young, uh, from a man in Nebraska, David. Hi, David. I need to identify all these people today. He's listening to the free will discussions. Free will's critical to the Bible. Satan did, wanted to control the free will of the angelic host. He's confronting free will. He knows free will exists. Why does he know it? Because he is the first one to decide to do what? To sin. And how smart is he? He's very, very smart. How smart is everybody else compared to him? Not as smart. He's powerful. He's the most powerful. So the most powerful, the one closest to God, the anointed cherub, he makes a decision, a free will decision to sin. Think of the implications of that. What does he expect now from the rest of them? We'll get to that in a second. But Satan is confronting free will in himself and in others. And in that process of confronting free will, Satan, it says, Ezekiel 28:16, is filled with violence, which means filled with murder. It's a Genesis 6 reference as well. But he's filled with murder. Angel by angel he goes. The abundance of his traffic, that's what that means. He goes to each and every angel, one at a time. And, and whether they choose Satan or choose God, Satan nonetheless, regardless, becomes filled with murder. He will hate and murder those who follow him, and he will attempt to hate, or I'm sorry, he will hate and murder those who don't. That's what he will do, or try to do. He will succeed in murdering those who follow him. If you follow Satan, he will succeed in his goal of murdering you. That's what he does. There's your choice. So the key question, by the way, from Boris, Bill, and Mike. Why did any angels choose God? And that's a very key question, profound question. In other words, why didn't all the angels fall? How come we have any angels that made it? Why didn't they all go down? How many humans have sinned? I've said this many times. You are sitting next to one. Move away from them. <laughs> all humanity fell. How many angels fell? When he went to angel, to angel, to angel, the smartest, most powerful, anointed cherub comes to each and every one of them with a paradox, by the way. Free will, goodness of God, paradox. Exactly the same as Matthew 19. 
free will. How can God's, how can God's omniscience exist with your ability to have free will? So therefore God must be what? If you sin and His omniscience has authority over your free will, then He is the what? He's the author of sin. So therefore God is evil. And therefore you can't be judged and you can't be divorced for any reason. Right? It's the same question. Do you see that? I hope you do. And God's response is omniperfection, good from the beginning. I cannot. I am impeccable. Sin cannot be in me. If sin is not in me, then it is where? It's in us. It's not in him. It cannot be in him. So that's how he responds. But why didn't all the angels fell? How many of them sinned? And then how many of them fell? Is falling and sinning the same? Look at yourselves. Have you fallen? Are you redeemed? So Satan fell first, and he is the anointed cherub. And what did he expect being who he is when he went angel to angel? And it didn't happen. I think he expected uh, unanimity, a, unanim- a unanimous verdict, and he did not get it. In fact, when finally the dust settled, he got one-third. So what did he confront that he did not expect? This that might. He confronted free will decision to do what? To believe that God is good. He didn't expect it, but that's what he got. A free will, faith in God's goodness. And that did what to him, according to Ezekiel 28.16? Filled him with murder. So, yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's, let me move on now. Okay. Now, I want to say this to everybody on the Internet. This is kind of a thing today. We're going to go, uh, I'm going to get through sharing really fast here. And then we'll open up the floor a little bit and try to... The people that write me the most and, and call me the most are Benjamin from Chicago. And Benjamin, I got your message and I do intend to call you uh, back. Uh, the key to your question that you asked me is uh, unbelief is considered to be the greatest of all evils by God. And why is that? Why is unbelief so evil? If you don't believe in the goodness of God, you don't believe in the existence of God, he calls you profoundly wicked. Because it's an act of great wickedness. By the way, it's narcissism, hedonism. But so, Benjamin, I'll call you on that here uh, as soon as I get time. And I've been working every day, and so that's been part of the problem. Uh, And Peter, who sent us the picture of the cat. Uh, Peter, it's a delight to have you. Uh, Sharon uh, wrote me a letter, and I'm going to read, or wrote me an email. I'll, I'll read this. And Jennifer, and then there's Janet and Dan and Stephen and David from Nebraska and Chris from Missouri and uh, and Mark and Stephanie from Texas, uh, the people that I hear from a lot, and those are the ones. I, I hope I didn't uh, omit anybody, um, uh, but uh, I just uh, those are the ones I wrote down as I was listening to the music, and so I wanted to uh, acknowledge that it's been wonderful having all you folks um, uh, write all the time and send us things. It's very encouraging. Okay, Sharon writes me and says, um, if I were convinced there is a pre-trib rapture, obviously I would not worry. Um, and, and if you have any teachings on the rapture debate, I'd be delighted to be directed to them. Goodness knows this pre-trib idea is appealing. 
And I love hearing what people write to you and the various points and, uh, of view believers from around the globe have. Uh, and then she tells me, please don't read my other email. And I definitely uh, will not, Sharon. Uh, um, that was a, uh, um, powerfully written, and um, I understand what you're trying to deal with. Uh, Sharon is asking for our prayers because she has a particular uh, medical condition that you don't want to know about. And this is why when you end up talking to Lindsay and Christopher and Charlotte and all these folks in here that are medical professionals, what they have to see and deal with every day is astonishing. And I get a small little piece of it every now and then. And So Sharon, we definitely uh, uh, will pray for your continued health because I love your letters and you, you're necessary around here. Um, so she wants to know... Is the pre-tribulational rapture, what, what, she just wants to know things about it. Why do I think it's the case? I think it's the case because I have the Hebrew betrothal uh, pattern, and that clearly shows the uh, pre-tribulational rapture. The bridegroom comes and snatches the bride, and I know the bride is the church. I know it's not Israel, and it comes before the seven, and so it's obvious to me that it is uh, um, the, the rapture is, is not uh, able to be determined uh, but it does predate the, the uh, tribulation. The tribulation begins on the covenant between Israel uh, and the Antichrist being uh, solidified, if you will. And I know that Jacob's trouble <coughs> or the focus of the tribulation is on Israel. It's not on the church. It's not on believers. They have been snatched away by the bride. And now I'm back to the wife. And the focus is on Jacob's trouble. It's called Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble, not believers' trouble, but Israel's trouble. And there's three reasons for the tribulation in Scripture. Worldwide revival, which is really the ultimate reality revealed for the physical reality. In other words, the ultimate reality is made obvious during the tribulation. Um, that, that's, and that results in a worldwide revival. So many people are saved during the tribulation. And it's also uh, to end the wicked ones. In other words, it ends uh, Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. That's the second reason. And the third is to break the will of Jacob, break the will of the stubborn people Israel, and turn them towards Christ as God, and make them um, accept and believe in Christ as Messiah, as Savior. And so that is why it is obvious. Everybody who has a mid-trib or post-tribulational view on the rapture, uh, if you have a post-tribulational view, by the way, then you're saying that Christ brings everybody up in the air and then brings them right back down again. That, that doesn't make any sense. At least not to me. We all go up and meet him in the air, and then we all come back down immediately afterwards. What's the point of that? Uh, so that's, that's always been difficult. The mid-trib people, you know, they, they just want everybody to suffer for some period of time. And I'm joking, but I'm mostly serious about that. They want you to at least take some kind of a beating before you get out of it. It isn't about you. It's never about you. It's about God. It's to His glory and His benefit to remove the church. You don't get out of anything. Quit thinking it's about you. I'm not going to be raptured because it's about me and I deserve a beating. You're right. You deserve a beating. But that's not why he raptures you. He does it because he's trying to turn Israel back to him. It's part, it's the sixth stage. And you're not Israel. I know you all want to be. And we have churches that wear robes and pretend they're priests and they have hats and they do all that stuff. But you're not Israel. You're the bride. Sorry. Not really. Fake sorry. 
It's two distinct events. Let me just go through it quickly. In the rapture, Christ comes for his own. That's what the Bible says. He comes for his own. Comes for the bride. In the return. See, I got rapture and I got return. In the return, it says that the Bible says Christ comes with his own. In the rapture, he is in the air. And we meet him in the air. When he returns at the end of the tribulation and and in the campaign of Armageddon, he steps on the earth. Distinct events. He comes in the rapture to claim the bride, the church. In the return, he comes with his bride. The bride comes with him. In the rapture, it's the removal of the believers. In the return, it's the revelation that he is God. In the rapture, only his own see him. In the return, every eye sees him. They are described totally different. They have no relationship in the sense that they are separate events. One for Israel, one for the church. In the rapture, the tribulation is about to come. In the return, the millennium is about to come. In the rapture, the saved, the believers, are delivered from wrath. And they go to the judgment seat of Christ. In the return, the unsaved experience the ultimate reality and that wrath that comes with it. In the rapture, no one, there's no signs. Not a sign at all. In the return, there's signs and wonders everywhere. It's all about ultimate reality. Okay? So, Sharon, I hope that helps you. And thank you for your, your letters. Okay. Do I have any other questions? Or would you rather have the buffet? I know I tied up a lot of time with Matthew 19. Many of you had, I had maybe half a dozen questions on that. And that's why I did that. So that was a question-answer part. We got... Seven, eight minutes. And anything that bugs you, stump the pastor. Bring up your 20 bucks. See if you can take him. I like your chances. Play me pool later. You can teach me how to play pool. Maybe cards. You don't have any money, son. I know that. Oh, you're borrowing it. You're what we call dead money, baby. Okay. Do you have anything? Is oh, yes, dear. Yes, in fact, that's in Matthew 19. She's asking. She said, "How do I know, essentially, that children are saved?" Because in Matthew 19, he tells you. In fact, I'll just read it. How about that? Couldn't get a better question. It's about the context today. Matthew 19:13 Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray but the disciples rebuked them in other words said don't bring those little kids around him And Jesus said let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven And he laid his hands on them and departed from there Okay who is Jesus He is God who is God? He is good creator, omniperfection, right? And he says this. God says, let the little children come to me. Is that good news for little children? They go to him. How do I know they go to him? Because of Matthew 19, 13. Let the little children come to me. All the little, did he specify only, only five or six? 
How big is he? People ask me all the time. I don't think Christ is able to keep track of all of these dead children, and so he's, a couple of them have to fit, slip through his hand. So you're saying that he's not able to resurrect them all. Or you're saying he doesn't want to go to the trouble to resurrect them all. So you end up saying he's not able or he's not willing, and therefore you have called him what? Evil. He's good. Is it good to let the children come to him? It's good. That's why he does it. Because he's good. And he's saying so. He's saying, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. They're coming to me. Yes, ma'am. That's a very interesting question. All children are saved. She asked, are all children raptured? You have a household issue now. Now, I know you guys have all uh, got the, the Tim LaHaye books and all that, and he raptures all children. Or says so. You have a household issue. Are all children's raptured in a saved household? I believe yes, that I can defend that. Are all children raptured? All children are what? Saved. Are all children raptured? It's a different situation. And so uh, uh, the answer to your question is... You were confused by me? Well, I didn't tell you no. I didn't. I said you have all children are raptured in a household of a believing family. That is obvious in Scripture. Okay, what if the what if the wife is unsaved and the husband is? Do we still get the children, or do we only get the children that like the husband? Okay, I mean you can you can begin to drive yourself crazy, but if you start to work it out, it's really pretty easy. All children who die in childhood are saved. Okay, so if all children are not are not raptured because of different religions, uh, and they die in the tribulation, will they be saved? Yes. If they died in any medical procedure, are they saved? Yes. He calls them living souls, calls you living souls. What kind of person is not saved? Unbelievers are not saved. Children cannot be unbelievers. Yes. Age of accountability is a wonderful question. What is the age of accountability? Okay, you have three different views on this. Okay, view number one. You may not like all my answers. View number one is, is that it's a bar mitzvah age or 13. Actually, you got more than, than three. View number two is that it is 30. Okay? By the way, all you have to do is look at the brain of a 14-year-old boy. Why do I keep bringing that up? When do you turn 15? So I can start saying 15. 17th of August. Okay, we're still in 14-year-olds. If you look at the medical studies that have been done on the brain of a 14-year-old boy, they are using literally none of their risk assessment and their logic. And she has a 17-year-old that flunked jewelry. So, and his name's Michael, for those of you in Australia. So, uh, the point of that is, is that uh, clearly it is obvious that children get into 
a lot higher age than we think. What does God think is the question. Uh, and I have an answer. I don't know what he thinks. I know that he forbids you from, or Jewish tradition forbids you from reading the book of Ezekiel until you're 30 because they know your brain has not developed enough for you to understand it. And they turn out to be right. You leave the priesthood at 50. So you can go in at 30 and leave at 50. Which means I should be retired. Okay. If we know at what age accountability becomes this, at what age do you have the capacity to reject Christ? Because we know that little baby is not going to reject Christ. No offense, Mom, but if Christ comes here right now, the baby's going with him. They will go to him. All the animals will go to him. Who won't go? That's the question. How many teenagers will go? What age will they go? And the answer to the accountability question is, it is not known what the accountability age is. So I tell you this, it is very likely that it is possible the accountability age is different for each individual. So get with your problem. You're running out of time, some of you teenagers. But it could be 30. Any other questions really fast? Okay. I, I am going to start doing more of this. Que- yeah, musicians, start moving. I, may, I am going to do some of this question stuff a little bit more because I know there's a lot of them out there and a lot of them on the Internet as well. And it, uh, it's something that I used to do a lot, and it will save me as I go through this summer working as many hours as I'm doing. And so I'll probably do it again very soon, so don't be surprised if it comes. So start thinking about questions that you have about anything and, um, and start submitting them. When I get enough, I'll just answer them one Sunday. One more final thing. What is this today? Memorial Day. What are we remembering? We're remembering soldiers who did what? Who gave their life for who? For us. And so, what is that a very small picture of? The sacrifice of God who gave his life for us. And so, it is a very important day. Uh, There is no greater love than one who lays down his life for another. That's what the military does every single day. For no other reason than it is the right thing to do. So, let's rise and be